you know, looking back at it, we definitely should have gone for it. Um, just not, not, you know, one of those things. You look back at it and you say, of course we should go for it. We missed the field goal. on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the morning is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. North Star! Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. We are also brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We're coming to you live from the Kintec Studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. So our next guest joined us a few times in the spring as the Colorado Avalanche made their way to the Stanley Cup. He, of course, is the play-by-play guy of the Avs. He is also the PA announcer at Mile High for the Denver Broncos. I'm just calling it Mile High. I think it's Empower Field at Mile High. I'm just calling it Mile High. Uh, his name is Connor McGay. He he joins us now on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Connor. How are you? Morning, fellas. And yeah, at Mile High is uh, is probably the way to go because those of us who have lived here our whole life uh, just refer to it as Mile High. Yes, it is officially Empower Field at Mile High. But I just get the feeling that all you guys did today was call to gloat. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're, you're not wrong at all. And in I fact, so. I, I want you to tell me about the reaction to the Broncos' first yeah. game in Denver. I immediately went to like the Denver newspapers to read the columns. <laughs> I was just like, oh, yes, yes, this is so good. Tell me what people are saying in Denver after the Broncos lost to the Seahawks. Well, I mean, and you, you have seen it, right? And... Um... And well, usually a Monday, but in this case a Tuesday. After a game like that, uh, makes for uh, pretty good uh, columns and sports talk radio. If uh, if you catch my meaning, I, I, I think there's definitely some overreaction. Um, it, look, game one, but everything that went around this game, Russell's return to Seattle and. And all the little details in between, I mean, it was set up to be to be a big night. And when it's under the spotlight, it's under a microscope as well. And uh, and that's what made it uh, all the more interesting and 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 probably uh, gave it the reactions that it did. Um, everyone who was watching the Manning cast, for example, uh, was referring to the fact that you know that that Peyton wanted to jump through there and and do what he could to to uh, <laughs> to get in there and do something else to help, but. Uh, no, definitely interesting um, uh, yesterday and, and today. And I think that everything that goes into it, everybody's, everybody's new, right? You got a first-time head coach, two, two coordinators, a quarterback, and nobody that played in any preseason games. Um, so the little details that may seem easy maybe are not, and, uh, and it turned out to be maybe part of the difference in the end. Has there been talk about, the Broncos going with a rookie head coach and Nathaniel Hackett in, in such an important year for them? I, I don't know because the last two tries you had at head coach, uh, you, you, you were making, it, it just never worked for, for a myriad of reasons. And I, I don't think that 
I, I think there's a lot more faith in Nathaniel Hackett because of what he's done with the Green Bay Packers, where he's come from, uh, his lineage, obviously the son of a legendary coach and Paul Hackett. So I don't think there's been any trepidation about that. And again, that's where the overreaction comes in now because it's one game and uh, there is plenty of good in the preseason um, systematically, uh, but he is calling the plays on offense. And, uh, and, and then that's a lot to do to keep an eye on that and, and also the duties as a head coach. So I think that everyone now can just take a deep breath and and really get back to football the way that it should be now that the the big show is out of the way. But that's that's a game that the Broncos maybe needed to have because in the AFC West, especially uh, as we discussed previous, it's the best division in football, and you're going to need every single win and probably need 11 wins uh, to uh, to be a wild card team, make it into the postseason. So um, that makes uh, every game from here on out, even more important. Uh, I liked yesterday that Hackett came out and openly admitted and acknowledged that he got it wrong at the end of the game. Yep. I'm not sure if it'll yep. be anything more than something that exists in the in week one, but I thought, you know, I, th- I think a lot of coaches and a lot of people have issues trying to acknowledge that they made a mistake or that they got it wrong and that they could have done it differently. How did Hackett's comments play in Denver? I think at first people wanted the immediate comments after the game. People wanted more than than that. Just that sure. you're getting to the 46 yard line, and then that's that was for Brandon McManus. Um, the CBS Sports had the stat that Russell Wilson in the fourth quarter in his career at fourth and five or less is near 70 percent conversion rate, and field goals over 60. Uh, going back 30 years at a 6% conversion rate. So obviously everyone's throwing around their stats and their analytics. And I think, as we all know, in the moment, things are tougher than when you look back at it. Um, you're, it, it it's just so hard. But I, I also agree with you in the fact that, look, I think more people, and this is an everyday thing for everybody, can admit mistakes, and yep. that should be okay. Yep. You should be able to admit your mistakes, and even more important, I think, is you should be forgiven for those. And I think that there's not enough of either, and I think that, uh, at least I hope, the Broncos fans in particular would say, okay, you know, that's all right, and uh, we got a decent team that we can put out there, and now it's time to forgive and, and move on. So I actually did like that, especially after, you know, less than 24 hours, had some time to think about it and came out and said that I that's that shows maturity for me from Nathaniel Hackett hey Connor did it strike you uh or surprise you the booing that Russell Wilson got in Seattle but maybe more than that the glee that this win was met by from a lot of former Seahawks and former teammates of Russell Wilson yeah I I think both surprised me to be honest um and look, I mean, fans will be, you know, fans are fans and they're going to view each situation in their own way. Um, but I was surprised, to be honest, with with both, really. Um, we, we It made me think of, in this postseason, the Avalanche obviously played Nashville in the first round. And Matt Duchesne was on the Predators and he comes back and every time that he touched the puck, he got booed. Um and if you go back to 2016, uh, in the season that the Avalanche were dismal, went 48 points, uh, that's when he requested a trade. 
And he wanted out, and his, his quote was is that he wanted to go to a playoff team, wanted to play playoff hockey. He didn't want to go through another rebuild. Um, and that didn't sit well with Avalanche fans, um, I don't think. And even though he was supposed to be part of sort of post-Sackick and, and Hayduke building the Avalanche going forward, it didn't work out. I think it's different with Russell Wilson that – the Seahawks tried to shop him before all this. Remember the deal maybe didn't quite happen with the Cleveland Browns years yeah. ago. Not necessarily true that Russell Wilson asked for asked for an out. It may be a, a much more complicated situation. So, yeah, I guess from a fan's perspective, that may be hard to see all those details. You just think that he didn't want to be in Seattle anymore and got and he would get booed coming back. But yeah, it did it did surprise me a little bit the the uh, the frequency and the volume of that, and then. Richard Sherman and and uh, a couple other teammates uh, with some some glee in the fact that Seattle was able to beat Denver on opening night. Connor, I do want to ask you one Avs question. Um, with the departure of Nazem Kadri, who's going to be the second line center mm-hmm. in Colorado this season? You know, it's a good question, and I, I it, it may be coming a little bit more clear now that uh, Evan Rodriguez um, signed a one year, two million dollar deal. Uh, had a great year in Pittsburgh last year, uh, actually playing that position, uh, playing with Sid a bunch. Uh, he, he can do that. I mean, you really have three guys who could step up and do that. You, you've got Evan Rodriguez now. You've got JT Comfrey, and you've got Alex Newhook. And whether the last two are ready for it, I'm not quite sure. We'll see. Comfrey had a much better year last year. And I think Newhook, with last season under his belt, is going to play into the potential that he has. But the type of year that Kadri had, I mean, between him and Burakovsky, I mean, I think you're talking about over 175, 180 points that you have to really replace in there. Rodriguez is a start. Um, but it's also a possibility that the second-line center is on the, on the roster currently. And I also think yeah. that the Avalanche are in no hurry. Obviously, they, they won the Cup, they achieved their goal, so they can – have the roster that they have now go through American Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas, get to the new year and think that, okay, well, maybe, maybe we do need something more. Still have a first round pick this year. So maybe the avalanche would be a team to keep an eye on the deadline. That's a distinct possibility. But as of right now, uh, as it sits, I mean, you've, you've got maybe three, four options. Miko Rantanen has been thrown around as another one. He's a, he's played as a winger, but, uh, but in the absence of Kadri, both in the playoffs and regular season last year, Rantanen actually filled in at that second-line center spot. So uh, it, it, it's, uh, there are many possibilities there, but, uh, but we'll see. It, for me, coming up on October 12th at home versus the Blackhawks, I would think that maybe Evan Rodriguez would have that spot as of right now. Exciting times to be a sports fan in Denver. You got Russell Wilson in the Broncos. You get the defending Stanley Cup champion, Colorado Avalanche. You got the two-time NBA MVP in Nikola Jokic. Uh, I'm a little, little jealous, just a little bit. But you know what? Monday yeah, but night, we got we got the Seahawks. Monday night we did win the Super Bowl, so there's that. So that was great. Yeah, that's what it looked like. That's what it sure looked like. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Yeah, the first of two Super Bowls oh, this year. Hey, Connor, two thanks. Super Bowls over the Broncos. That's, that's, that's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Isn't Con- that something? Yeah. <laughs> Connor, thanks a lot for doing this, bud. We'll do this again as we get closer to the start of the app season. 
I sure hope so, fellas. Always good to be on. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. That's Connor McGahee, the play-by-play voice of the Colorado Avalanche and the PA announcer for the Denver Broncos. Okay, I got two quick notes here. Uh, I was actually just looking at the Broncos' schedule. Um, they've got Houston uh, this Sunday. Ooh, the Davis Mills um, Yeah, yeah n- n- whatever. Week three, they've got San Francisco, which is interesting because the Seahawks have San Francisco this week. Yeah. What if the Seahawks beat San Francisco? And we all know that there's question marks about Trey Lance, the quarterbacking situation in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and then San Francisco has to go to Denver. That's tough. That might be the only game, actually, this year that I cheer for the Broncos in. Yeah, that's really in, that's a really interesting dynamic there. Because let's say San Fran's an interesting team to watch right now. They're they're they've got potential to be a real uh, drama this yeah, season. I, I you know we were talking about this when we came in and did our classic Monday morning overreaction show. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to us being on the air, uh, the DA show on CBS Sports Radio, they were talking about who had the worst Sunday in the NFL, and he said it was Trey Lance and the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, and I was like, okay, but. They were on the road. It was a weather game in Chicago. I feel like teams had more devastating losses, but he kind of framed it as, this is a team that was one win away from the Super Bowl. This is a team that got all the way to the NFC Championship with Jimmy Garoppolo, and now they've turned the keys over to Lance, and that's your first performance. Mm -hmm. So I do think they're going to be interesting. Let's say, hypothetically, they lose to Seattle next week, which is totally in the cards given how bad Lance looked in the first week. And how amazing the Seahawks are. Exactly, with Geno Smith. Imagine they go 0 and 2 and then they got to go into Denver, a notoriously difficult place to play against yeah. Russell Wilson and a Broncos offense which you know aside from the goal line issues looked pretty good mm-hmm. against the Seahawks. I could easily see San Fran being 0 and 3, which is a place I don't think a lot of people would have saw them going back to maybe when they had Garoppolo as the starter and not Trey Lance. Okay, I had another point. Did Nathaniel Hackett really admit that he made a mistake. I saw you during the Connor McGahee interview. You got your eyebrows raised on that one. So you don't think that he did? I think he kind of did, but he said, like, we're going to play the audio, and you tell me if he admitted a mistake or he just said, well, we missed the field goal, so obviously we did it wrong. Did, did he really say that the process was bad? Because that's the most important thing, sure, right? Sure. The strategy was bad. Not that they should have gone for it just because the field goal was missed. Let's play that audio right now. You know, looking back at it, we definitely should have gone for it. Um, just not, not, you know, one of those things. You look back at it and you say, of course we should go for it. We missed the field goal. Um, but in that situation, we had a plan. I mean, we had a plan. We knew that the 46 was the mark. Uh, we were third and 15, I think, third and 13. I'm more upset about that play before it to lose yards, to be able to, you know, getting that there would have definitely uh, been better to be able to call that same play and get extra yards. But um, he dumps it out to Javante. Javante makes a move, goes a lot farther than I think we had anticipated. We were expecting to go for it on fourth down. And then you hit the mark, you know, the mark that we had all set before we started. We said uh, 46 yards. 46-yard line was where we wanted to be, and uh, we got there. So we had to make the decision if we wanted to give it to uh, you know, Brandon, and we did. And it didn't work. It sucks, but hey, that's part of it. The whole thing is about the plan. Yeah. Was the plan wrong? He actually said that if the Broncos had gained one fewer yard on the previous play, so instead of being at the 46-yard line, they would have been at the 47-yard line 
they would have gone for it, as mm. in they wouldn't have kicked the field goal. The whole thing was about the plan. Yeah. Right? The plan was bad. Yeah, and I think he acknowledged that. I don't think he did. He said, looking back at it, definitely we should have gone for it. Meaning yeah, it was he, a bad plan to go for it from the 46, the I, field goal that is. I think he only said it was a, it, it, they should have gone for it um, because he missed the field goal. And then he said, but that was our plan. He didn't say anything about the plan. At any uh, rate, it's you, we're kind of parsing words here. I get what you're saying. I don't think we are. That's yeah. the whole question. Like the whole question was why? Why is the 46 yard line your plan? Because in the pregame, that's where he was hitting from. Russ explained it at the podium too. Is that McMahon, every game they have the same routine? Is the kicker goes out and with conditions, both weather and field, you take a variety of kicks and then you tell your coach where there's like three. I, I've I've looked into this because I love kicking. Um, there's three or four things you kind of tell your coach, right? And it's where, and the one important one is where your max is. This is my max kick. Now the issue is, but not with a minute left on the clock. That's more like, do you uh, go for the field goal or do you do a hail mary? Like that's like it was a minute left on the clock and a fourth and five. Mm-hmm. That that's not like you haven't reached your goal there. But according to their plan, which we don't know whether... So the plan was bad. I don't think he admitted the plan was bad. Okay. That's more about how we interpret the words. To be honest, I think the only important thing that he said yesterday was that they definitely should have gone for it. That's the only thing that really matters I don't think it is because he's saying that it's not. Like the whole point is... Tell us about the process. Tell about the plan. We, 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 you know, we've got text in here. No, he didn't say he made a mistake. We got another text. Their mark was for a sixty-two yard field goal or whatever, a sixty-four yard field. Like ha ha ha. Another one. Bruff is so right. He never admitted it. It's it's an interesting situation because you've got a rookie head coach mm-hmm. with these high high expectations. And I know Connor said like he comes from a strong coaching lineage lineage. Yeah. Um, he, w- he did some really good work in, in, in Green Bay as the, he was their offensive coordinator there. But we're talking about like real pressure situations here. Yeah. And his first opportunity, whether you want to say the, the, he admitted his mistake or not, he blew it. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not really interested in trying to analyze what he said because I don't care. What I'm saying is I know the plan was bad. You know the plan was bad. Like I'm breaking it down as to why they did it. I think it was ridiculous. And I think what happened was Hackett got hit with all of the statistics that show that this is a crazy decision yeah. to go for the kick because I've got it here. No, so, but I think he was—he wasn't even acknowledging the stats. But I don't—he was saying that I don't he, care. I don't, okay, I don't, but he was yeah. saying that the only reason that he, they should have gone for it is because the field goal missed. Yeah, and I, and if he's and if that's the way that he's approaching it, then he's dead wrong because the conversation should be, um, this was a bad idea. What was the plan? Yeah. And the, why was that yeah. the plan? And this it was, was a, a minute left. Yeah. You got fourth and five. Russell Wilson, one of the best in that position. And he had been great all game in that, in that type of position. Mm-hmm. When they had like a third, well, not a fourth, but like a third and short yardage. Like yeah. that's what Russell Wilson does so well. That's why in Seattle, it was so important to have a good running game for him that would set up those positions. Well, it's also funny because they basically made a choice with, we're going to go with McManus over Russ. And we talked about that on Monday, right? It's like you pay all this capital in terms of roster players and draft picks. You give him $245 million. And then all of a sudden the plan is to go with what a kicker tells you in pregame. The other thing, too, is that all the numbers 
with regards to that being a successful kick, even though McManus told him he could make it, all the numbers suggest otherwise. Yeah. It would have been the third longest kick in NFL history, if I'm not mistaken. In a very tough <laughs> stadium. Yeah. Uh, not only from a noise perspective in the pressure situation, but that stadium, like the wind swirls a little bit. And I think in that end that he was kicking has been notoriously tough for kickers. It's no one's a tough hit, situation. No one's right? hit a kick that, that long at Lumen Field before. Really? Right. Not as no no no. It's, I think the longest is fifty eight. So all these things play into it, which is why I was saying, and maybe I kind of uh, misrepresented where I was going with this, but like I don't I, I, <laughs> just just admit that you were wrong. Like Nathaniel Hackett, admit that you were wrong. What was I'm I just, wrong about? I'm just joking, buddy. I don't. Yeah. Think anyway, no no no. But um, well, you, you, what you were wrong about was you said he admitted he made a mistake, and I don't think he did. Okay. Um, and I you know I look at this now, and I do. <laughs> I do wonder, big picture, how much this undermines him as a head coach. Because you brought it up with Connor, a rookie head coach, right? No body of work to fall back on. No history, no it's rings, no trophies. Start. Yeah, and the, the first thing that you do with your newly minted franchise quarterback is park him in favor of a kicker to make a historic kick. Yeah, That's going to hang with Hackett for a while. I guess the question is, how does he rebound from it? Is this a blip? But it's not a great start to your coaching career when the very first big decision you make, not only does it go pear-shaped, but you come back and say, yeah, I definitely should have gone the other way. I'm looking at the line for the Seahawks 49ers game, and it says 49ers by nine and a half. Seems like a lot. Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Have I got that right? Nine and a half? That doesn't That's a seem- lot of points. Well, no, that doesn't seem right. That feels off. That might be my lock of the week right now. Can I make my week- lock of the week on a... On a Wednesday? I don't know. Maybe we're being tricked here. I mean, what possible? <laughs> are you sure? Well, the 49ers are going to be desperate, and the Seahawks, maybe they're coming off an emotional letdown. And maybe this, like, the Seahawks, like, I, I don't think any of us are sitting there, well, hopefully not, mm-hmm. after a week one win, which, frankly, they should have lost. If you're looking at the total yardage and you're looking at things that went their way, mm-hmm. they probably should have lost that game. I don't think any of us are sitting there going, wow, the Seahawks are actually way better than we thought they were. Yeah. I don't think they're way better than we thought they were. So maybe the, the line makes sense. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back, and then we're going to go half football and half Canucks. We're, I want to play this audio from Pete Carroll yesterday. Uh, he was on Sports Talk Radio in Seattle. And we've talked about this a bunch, and I really want to try and, again, we're parsing words for another consecutive segment here. But there was a lot of talk from Pete about how much that win meant to the old Seahawks, to the guys that had played on the Super Bowl teams, to the guys that had played with Russell Wilson. Why did it mean so much to him? Pete kind of went down the road, but kind of didn't. But I think you're going to want to hear the audio. And then after that, we're going to talk to David Quadrelli from Canucks Army. Uh, we'll talk about everything that happened at Scotia Barn this week. We'll talk about the Pedersen uh, media availability. We'll talk about Quinn Hughes playing on the right side. So there's a lot to get into over the final half hour of this hour. Don't go anywhere. Halford Breath, Sportsnet 650. Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Ruff, Sportsnet 650. 
Alfred and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Uh, Alfred and Bruff of the Morning is also brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Okay, so we've been teasing this for the better part of an hour and a half. Yesterday, uh, Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll was on with uh, Mike Salk on Sports Talk Radio in Seattle, and Brock Heward, I should add. And they were talking about what Monday Night Football's win meant to the Seahawks and to Pete. Eh, Understandable question, pretty standard line of questioning. It was a big game. We said it was the Super Bowl for the Seahawks season. The conversation then took a really interesting turn because uh, Salk and Heward then started asking about how much it meant to former Seahawks, guys that played with Russell Wilson, guys that had played for the organization, and all of a sudden were back at Lumen Field, tweeting up a storm, talking about their days as Seahawks. It was a very interesting dynamic, right? Given all that we know about Russell Wilson's history with the organization, the acrimonious divorce, and then all these stories starting to come out about how he didn't maybe necessarily get along with a lot of his teammates. So we'll play the audio in full. Uh, Adog, how long are we looking at here, and how does it start? Are we aware of both of these things? Yeah, it's about 90 seconds. It okay. just starts with him saying he, did, he didn't think he needed the validation. Okay. I didn't need the validation. I just wanted it. I just wanted to win. You know, I wanted to win for every, all of the reasons that, that, that come along with this one. Uh, maybe as much as anything is representing the guys that have played before. It meant a lot to those guys. And uh, um, I was so thrilled to, to be able to hug those guys up and see them and look them in the eye. And, Why did and, it mean and, so and much show. to them? Yeah, you figure that out. They, they, um, but it was really meaningful, and they really wanted it. And uh, I knew we were playing for a lot more than just the regular stuff and, and uh you know we have a um we we have a real connection with our with the history of and the legend i don't do we have a legends a legends group that those guys would fit into yeah that, that they all belong in it you know and and uh they feel it and they love the fact that they played here and they love seeing us do well and and in this night they they realized what you know there was a, a big opportunity and and they uh and a big statement to be made you know um you know, the game isn't about an individual player here or there. It's about team. This is the ultimate team sport, for, and it's been stated so many times before. It takes everybody. And, and uh, sometimes when... I'm going to reread that one line. <laughs> Just think about what Pete's talking about. So they asked him, they said, why did it mean so much to the guys? And he said, ah, you figure it out. And he's like, you know what? I'll, I'll let you figure it out with this. On this night they realized there was a big opportunity and a big statement to be made. The game isn't about an individual player here or there. Who were they? Who was he talking about, do you think, that individual player? It's the ultimate team sport. Who do you, you need everybody. Who do you think that individual player was that he was talking about? Who's to say, really? Who's to say? Um, are you willing to get on board with the theory that Russell Wilson called an audible in the Super Bowl. Oh yeah, I'm and, it, and, it, and it all and the and the down and the and the downfall started there. I'm, I'm yeah, I I, I would. It, it's going to make my job so much more fun if I allow myself to believe yeah. it. And it's a harmless conspiracy theory. It's in the past. They lost mm. the Super Bowl. The the result's not going to change. So I am going to allow myself to believe. I that. need to know the truth. <laughs> so I need to know the theory. It was, in, it was in Brady Henderson's piece. Yep. The theory goes 
that um, Russell Wilson, who I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but has been at times enamored with winning most valuable player, at the end of that game, saw the opportunity to throw the game-winning touchdown against the New England Patriots as opposed to hand the ball off so Marshawn Lynch could score the game-winning touchdown on the ground to win a Super Bowl. Now, there's been no real confirmation of this. I saw some stuff where Marshawn was on a podcast and he kind of muttered something about like, I had to call an audible or something like that. So the play call was, this is going on the ground and then Russ either wanted that MVP or saw something in the defensive scheme that he audibled. Now, I'll say this. This has only grown in time, and the legend of this conspiracy theory has grown because no one has ever even come close to talking about it on the record or confirming it, right? Like, Pete's been very... God, what a great 30 for 30 this would make. Right? The the rise of the Seahawks and the Legion of Boom and Russell Wilson. Um, I think there'd be a great story um, just related to the team. Um, Even Pete Carroll coming from USC his history in the NFL, um, going to USC and having that really powerful program down there, but also leaving under some controversy with that Mm -hmm. program, coming to Seattle and building what they did build, Mm -hmm. but also then like great sports stories often involve big egos, right? The Chicago Bulls documentary. How how much did that involve egos and how ultimately it was kind of egos that I, I won't say tore them apart because they got it done. You know what tore them apart was Jerry Krause. Right. But, (laughs) but, but his ego was in play there as well. All these guys that wanted credit and they wanted, they wanted the glory. Mm -hmm. And ultimately in the Seahawks case, you could argue that the team game for Russell Wilson Became more of a me game. See, that's well put, by the way. That could be the title of the uh, 30 for 30. Yeah, you know, there's a, like, Petey had two me's last season. <laughs> the team game instead of the me game. The Russell Wilson 30 for 30. Uh, it's funny that you go that direction with it, because my takeaway from the, w- comparing it to the, the, the great Bulls team and the last dance stuff mm-hmm. is that despite the fact that Egos were rampant and incessant, and guys literally hated each other. They still won. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you look back on the Seahawks, and they only won one Super Bowl. They should have won two. Yeah. Despite all of the the pettiness and the je- jealousy and the egos and maybe guys not necessarily getting along, amazing teams. The Super Bowl winning team that tore apart Denver in, in, in that awesome. Super Bowl was great. They were amazing. And... It's funny sometimes that you can have this really sort of chaotic, conflicted group, but in the end, if you've got enough talent and you got the right guy calling the shots, everything you can win. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have. You to don't love. have to be one happy family. Yeah, it's not a band of brothers. Sometimes, sometimes you actually, you know, when your brother's not looking, you want to like fire something at the back of his head, right? Yeah. Like, and this is completely different. And you know, I I think the one sad thing about that era and that that team and teams plural is that they only got the one Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be remembered for the one that they won, which to be honest takes a total backseat to the one that they lost. Oh, absolutely because the game wasn't all that compelling. It was right. a blowout win. It was over from the start. Yeah. It was it was a complete it was a slobber knocker as they say. Uh we got a text from Gmaz 
says that the amount of Seahawks talk on your station regarding one game is ridiculous. Consider the Canucks are ramping up enough already, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of most of your listeners. We will take your advice, dear GMAS. In a couple minutes here, we're going to be joined by David Quadrelli from Canucks Army. Uh, he is going to break down everything that's happened over the last few days. And GMAS does have a point. Things are ramping up as it pertains to the local hockey squadron. Not only are they practicing, we're already starting to delve into the world of can Quinn Hughes play on the right side and does that affect the defensive pairings. Also, I think it's worth noting that over the last week and a half, we have heard from JT Miller, who signed his big multi-year extension with the club, Bo Horvat, the captain, mm-hmm. who is without a contract beyond this upcoming season, and yesterday, Elias Pettersson, of whom great things are expected going into the season. How does this Canucks team compare to the Seahawks, though? It's true. Who's the Russell Wilson of this team? Um, Petey met with the media yesterday, and we actually led the show with this. And if GMAS would have gotten up early and been an early bird, uh, he would have heard us talk about Petey and his um, guarded um, media availability. And I think that's just how Petey is. Um, he doesn't want to say anything and he's admitted this. He kind of said this. He's like, I don't want to make headlines, uh, or he doesn't want to create this false narrative that, uh, he was actually asked, like, did you, because of last season seemed to be all between the ears, psychological, did you reach out to anyone for help? And he said, no, I don't want to create a headline because it really would be like the perfect story. For us lazy journalists like Petey found himself a mental coach and that mental coach walked him through this. Now, Petey just said, listen, I got through this by talking to my family. I got through this myself. Mm -hmm. I figured it out. And he said, interestingly enough, that he's somewhat happy that he went through last season. Yeah. Because he learned some stuff. He learned how he got out of it. Now. I think it's always very important as sports media guys not to write the stories ending too quickly. And I think we tend to do that too much. Like speaking of stories that could be written after his media availability yesterday, Petey learned a lesson about how to get out of uh, a slump. Right. The end. Happy ending. Well, he, he hasn't, hasn't, hasn't happened yet, right? Yeah. Like we don't know for sure what he's learned because we haven't seen him play this season. Mm-hmm. And that's why all eyes are going to be on Pedersen. Yeah. It's, in, it's in, a, in the preseason training camp and the first few games. Like for me, I've said this before and I'll say it again a hundred times before the season starts. Petey is the guy that I'm going to be watching the closest. Despite the JT Miller contract extension, despite Bo Horvat maybe even to heading into training camp without a contract extension, despite the Quinn Hughes maybe playing on the right side or the left he- left side, despite the importance of Thatcher Demko to this team and Bruce Boudreaux, what's his training camp going to look like? For me, it's Petey. Yeah, it's the continual proving ground, right? It never changes. Every year, I mean, that's the, the really interesting and intriguing thing about sports is that there are certain guys that you just pencil in. For certain things. But those are the elite few, the superstars that you know perennially year after year. You know what you're going to get. Will they have a down year? Unless they're hurt, probably not. And there's rarefied air for those guys, right? That's McDavid. It's probably Austin Matthews. It's Sidney Crosby. It's guys that have done it so many times that you know what you're getting. And with Pedersen, I remember talking about this a lot last year, especially in the first half when everything went wrong. 
losing games, no offense, minutes declining, coach eventually gets fired. Uh, we kind of wondered, is this the first time maybe in his hockey life that he's gone through legit real adversity? Mm-hmm. Just think about it. Uh, he missed the better part of all of the previous campaign with the wrist injury that ultimately led to surgery. He was off the ice for an extended period of time trying to recover from it. Then when he came back, it was almost like the sport was a little foreign to him. Remember that sequence against Carolina when he fell down on the breakaway? And then uh, Freddie Anderson Yeah, rock, rock bottom. That it, was rock bottom. It looked like the sport was foreign to him at times. The next game he played better. And I, think I, was in, I want to say it was in Washington. Yeah, and I can't imagine that that's happened really ever in his career. Because when you go back and look at his career in the Swedish Hockey League, he was maybe the best player in the league as a, as a, as a kid. I love what you just said there. Thanks. Um, the sport looked foreign to him. That's what I felt when I was watching him early last season. Mm-hmm. Picking up the puck seemed difficult to him. It was like he got the puck on his stick and he yipped it away half the time. Yep. It, will, it, lo- it looked like everything had betrayed him. And then he's just like, and, uh, and now I'm falling. Yeah, and then he and then just, the it was funny though, and I know quite early skating on hold, yips. Like, very rare. But then he had that that game in Carolina. I remember Bruff came in and he's like, "That's got to be the low point." Because because not only did he stumble on the breakaway, if I'm not mistaken, Freddie Anderson like then kind of took him down, took him down right after. Yeah. And it was like the Benny Hill music was playing in the background. And then he crashed into the boards. And then he crashed yeah. into the boards. And I was like, if you looked at it, you saw you levy in the preseason <laughs> there. <laughs> right? Like, he's like, oh, crumpled Oli, against hello. the boards doing his Ole You Levy impression. He's like, you're still down here? Haven't you got up yet? <laughs> and then after that, snap of the fingers, literally had a great game in Washington. And then had, I think it was 51 points in his last 43 games. He was better than a point a game guy for the second half of the season. My conspiracy theory is that when the Canucks season started sideways, Pedersen tried to carry the team on his shoulders, and he did too much, and he didn't succeed at it. And it wasn't the losing that got in his head. It was the fact that he couldn't be the guy and take the team through all those losses. And that's why he carried it with him even when the team started winning. That's a valid theory. I think, Whether sure, that's true or not, I have no idea. I'm sure it's got probably something. But that just that's how he looked on the ice. He looked like he was just the cliche of trying to do too much. Yeah. He was just trying to be the guy all the time, and he wasn't leaning on his team. And I do, I do think part of the reason why maybe he's not opening up, as we like to say, or giving us the answer that we particularly want, I don't think it was any one thing. I think eight different things conspired yeah. against him at the start of the year. Right, and at that and then point, it snowballed, and then it snowballed, and it's yeah. like, well, can I fix one thing? And he yeah. lost all his confidence. Can I fix one thing? You can maybe fix one thing, but you've got seven other things that aren't working yeah. for you either, right? So it's a really interesting dynamic. Let's continue the Canucks conversation now. Oh, what a clever work that is! Uh, Canucks Army, David Quadrelli here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet six fifty. What up, Quads? How much? How are you guys doing? And we're good, man. How are you doing? It's been a while since we've spoke, but the Canucks are, according to one of our angry texters, ramping up right now, and that's why we're talking Canucks because they're ramping up right now. You were at Scotia Barn for the last few days. Uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what you heard from Elias Pettersson yesterday because now we've gone through the sort of big three up front. We heard from JT Miller, we heard from Bo Horvat, and now we've heard from Petey as well. Yeah, so I almost want to start on the ice, and I I can tell you he looks better than he did at this time last year because we didn't even see him last year, right? And I know you guys were just talking about all the things that conspired against PD last year um, to have him have such a rough start to the season. I think a big thing, you know, was missing training camp, especially since it was due to a contract holdout, right? So, you know, the fact that he's just on the ice with his teammates, he even spoke about it yesterday, 
um, you know, that it feels totally different, right? It, it, it's really good for him, especially with the new bodies coming in. Like, um, you know, and nothing nothing proves that better than watching uh, he and Andre Kuzmenko come in on a rush and Kuzmenko set up Petey for a one-timer when everybody on the ice thought Kuzmenko was going to shoot, uh, you know, feeds it to Petey at the last second for an easy, easy one-timer uh, where Petey obviously made no mistake on it. So, again, like the on-ice stuff, I- I'm looking at it and I'm saying, okay, like, there's a lot that didn't go right last year, but one of the big things in my mind was that, you know, he missed training camp due to a contract holdout. Obviously, there's increased expectations when you do that. Um, so, obviously, that was another thing that conspired against him. But, look, the guy's on the ice right now, and I think that's what I took away from what he said was just that, yeah, like, it's nice to be back. It's nice to be with my teammates, and it's nice to be on the ice. Because we didn't hear that. Like, we heard that one night before the one night before the first game of the season, right? Like, that was the only time we heard that from PD last year. So the fact that he's just here, right? Like, it's it's still September, and the fact that he's here, I think that's massive, right? He's going to get the full training camp experience, uh, going to play in all the preseason games, or as many as Bruce uh, wants him to, but I think that's the biggest thing, is that he's just here, right? And again, like, going back to your original question about what he said, look, like, I, I found all of it really interesting, to be honest with you. I, I know he didn't say much, but I think... I found interest in the way that he's guarding himself now, right? I, I believe it was on your guy's show uh, about a year ago that he said um, he kind of toned back the social media yep. usage or whatever, right? Um, you know, he didn't talk about that, but he did talk about not taking any vacation this summer, right? Yeah. Like he said, I've just been training all off season because I, I believe he was asked explicitly like, hey, uh, you looked really good out there. It's your first day back. Like what's going on? And he said, like, I've been training every day. <laughs> I didn't take any real vacation. I think that was my biggest takeaway from what he said was that, you know, he was up front and saying like, look, I know I wasn't good enough last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I trained every day in the off season uh, and just further to that. And sorry, I know you've only gotten in one question, but just further to that, um, you know, it was brought up, Oh, well the wrist and you had the wrong sticks, right? Like he was playing with uh, a different stick that he wasn't used to. And, you know, he had the nagging wrist injury Um And it was kind of set up for him in a sense of, well, some of what happened last year wasn't your fault, right? And he was just like, yeah, not really. Like, let's be honest, it was was my fault, that kind of thing. Like, he didn't want to hear any excuses. Uh, So I think those were the two biggest things for me. Yeah, I noticed that too. He was like, nah, it it wasn't that. The, yeah. the, me- the media was giving him excuses uh, on a tee because that's what we're good at. We're like, it's not, a, it's not your fault, right? Or it's not our fault. He was like, yeah. Um, and, and I thought it was also interesting that he said he was focusing on the wrong things and he didn't really extrapolate on that and he didn't really want to get into it. He just said kind of like, I was focused on what people wanted to see from me mm-hmm. instead of, I think he meant like his own game or maybe what got him to the point of success where there were those expectations. So here's a question for you, Quads. What are expectations for Elias Pettersson this season? Well, okay, so it's hard to say expectations, right? Because it depends what you, well, for lack of a better term, what you expect from him, right? Do you think that the real Elias Pettersson is the one that we saw in the second half? Personally, I do. So I'm setting my expectations there. I'm saying the expectations for Pettersson, uh, look, this is year two of his bridge contract. He's going to need a new contract the year that the cap goes up in 24-25, right? That's when the cap's going up significantly. He's going to need a new contract. Look, 
the expectations are to be the team's best center, right? Like, he needs to bring that defensive game, which we know he has, right? He needs to score over a point per game. He needs to be this team's number one center. Because, guys, like, I, I was writing a piece about this uh, very recently. I think it's going to go up today. Just about the, the contracts we're seeing in St. Louis, right? And all the eight-year contracts. Like, Eric Chernak got an eight-year contract this summer. Like, Petey's going to be looking for an eight-year contract when his uh, when his bridge deal is up, and he's going to want to get a high number, right? So the way to do that is by showing everybody that, hey, this is, this wasn't just a flash in the pan last year, and the first year I had that wasn't just that wasn't just flashes. I can do this consistently because, look, you're not going to get paid like a first line center if you can't do it for 82 games, right? Like you need to be a consistent offensive producer if you're going to get paid like one. So for me, the expectations for Elias Pettersson, I, I'd say this year and next are to really come into his own and show everybody who the real PD is, right? Because uh, he even said it yesterday. It felt like there were two me's uh, last season was what he said, and I yeah. couldn't agree more, right? Like, it, it, it feels, you know, he kind of kind of alluded to almost feeling lost when he was on the ice. You almost felt lost as a viewer watching him. Like, totally. wait, where, where's Elias Pettersson on the ice? Because yeah. usually we're so used to just seeing him right away. And guys, I got to tell you, I know it was just a skate at Scotiabarn in Burnaby, but... You had that yesterday where you, you saw every time he was on the ice. And it wasn't just because we were really close up or whatever. It was just, you know, uh, the way he moves, the way he kind of operates. He was back-checking hard. He was doing everything at full full speed. Uh, and you, you could just tell. You were like, oh, yeah, there's PD. So, again, uh, expectations for me for, for what I think for him this season. Uh, it's over a point per game. It's, it's getting those tough defensive matchups. And it's being, uh, you know, it's being a consistent penalty killer for this team now. It's being... Uh, uh, power play driver as well. It's it's basically everything for Elias Pettersson. I think this has to be Elias Pettersson's year where he really comes into his own. And again, that's not to set any expectations that are just too high. I, I would argue that those are also the expectations PD's probably set for himself. If Quinn Hughes pairs with Oliver ekman Larson and Quinn Hughes is on the right side, Oliver ekman Larson is on the left side, I have two questions here. One, what qualities does that pairing bring um, and also, how do the rest of the pairing shake out? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question because obviously it's an offensively-minded pairing, right? And I know I was analyzing this way too close. Like, I was looking at old tape of how Quinn Hughes carries the puck up the ice, and one thing I saw was, well, he likes to shield the puck on his left and, and use his whole body weight uh, to kind of push against push against any four checkers so I was kind of watching yesterday of okay how's he doing it now and again like obviously he's carrying it on his backhand but he was also kind of not switching sides but he was like skating through the ice and using the middle of the ice a little bit more uh, and when I say middle I mean on a north-south um, kind of basis he, right. he was moving to the middle and then cutting back wide which I found really interesting um, look he was receiving passes on his backhand because the one question that I always had uh, when this started to get thrown around was okay, well, OEL can play the right side, and Quinn wants to try it, so why isn't OEL playing the right side and your best defenseman is playing in the same spot that he is? And I think it got answered a bit for me yesterday because OEL snapped a pass, a D-to-D pass the blue line uh, to Quinn, and he received it on his backhand in the blink of an eye, had it on his forehand, and then obviously because he's on his offside, his hip, hips are open, so he's a dangerous shooting threat for the goaltender, but then he was able to just slide it right down across the ice for an easy tap-in, uh, for Vasily Podkolzin on the back door. So that was one thing that I kind of saw was like, okay, well, it's because he has such good putt control. Uh, he can receive a pass on his backhand and then with his edge work be in the blink of an eye, uh, you know, a dangerous offensive threat before the before the defender has even gotten a chance to get to him. So that was what I saw from the left side, right side thing. So again, 
it's an offensive-minded pairing uh, with OEL and Hughes. Again, are, are you asking Oliver ekman Larson to kind of be that defensive stalwart on that pairing? Because to, to an extent, he proved he could do it last year with Tyler Myers, right? Um, so, so I think that's kind of what you're expecting from that pairing is, you know, Hughes is obviously the primary puck mover, but we know ekman Larson can, um, you know, he, he, can, he can make some pretty nice breakout passes himself. Uh, obviously, he's going to wheel the puck like Quinn Hughes can, uh, skating it up the ice. But again, it's an offensively-minded pairing, and I think at, at its best, I think it's a pairing that you're just hoping keeps the puck out of their end entirely. It's not one that you're like, okay, well, the in-zone defense can be really good. It, it might be. That's not a knock on either guy. It's just that you're hoping that the puck is in the other end uh, at all times. As for um, the rest of the pairings, I think the biggest thing is it frees up Jack Rathbone, who who I believe that this organization thinks deserves a deserves a promotion to the NHL, and I would argue he did. Uh, I, I've been saying this for a long time, but I always said that even last year, uh, Jack Rathbone was probably the club's best third-pairing option. Um, I, I would say he's better than Brad Hunt, who got a lot of those minutes, and I, I think it was just better for his long-term development to be in the AHL, and I think ultimately that's why he stayed in the AHL. I don't think it was because the organization looked at him and said, this guy can't play better than Brad Hunt. I think it was because they said, Hmm. let's actually let this guy develop into something better than a third-pairing defenseman instead of just keeping him on a third pair uh, for all of his NHL career. Quads, great stuff today, bud. Thanks a lot for doing this. We appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the rest of the week at Scotiabard. I'm sure we'll be doing this again real soon. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thank you. David Quadrelli from Canucks Army and Canucks Conversation here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We're up against it for time, but for those of you that want more Canucks talk as the season ramps up, we're coming back with basketball. <laughs> Grizzlies talk. Grizzlies talk here on the Halford Brough Show. Uh, Kat Jamie, who is the director of Finding Big Country, which was a terrific documentary about. She is now back with another Grizzlies related documentary that is going to debut at the Vancouver International Film Festival. We'll talk to her about it next. This one isn't about Finding Big Country. This one is getting down to the reason why the Grizzlies left Vancouver. Kat Jamie is coming up next on the Halford Brough Show on Sportsnet 650.